again, there are some group of patients that will not survive intubation, especially immunocompromised patients. We know we have, their immune system is so weak and now we are bypassing, you know, our natural defenses <laughs> to prevent any pneumonia or any other complications with the intubation. We know it's it's gonna be an issue. Oh, I gotta go. I've been working, told them please don't hit my phone. I'm in my zone, bro. Just leave me alone. Was on the road, but I swear I'm coming home. Now the drinks on me, I think we need a toast. See, I did it for me. Now my old friends calling, told them nothing's for free. Told me time is money, dog, swear I paid all my fees. I was starving for this game, now my fan they can't eat. Hey everyone, welcome, welcome, welcome to the Cup of Nurses show here with your hosts, Peter and Matt, two nurses on a mission to change this world, one conversation at a time. If you find value on this show and want to join us on this mission, please share and review the show. It would mean absolutely everything to us. For our latest info and updates, you can check out cupofnurses.com. And for our lifestyle podcast, you can check out wearefrontlinewarriors.com. Brief announcement, it is December, Christmas time. If you want to get some hot nursing merch, maybe for somebody that you know or for yourself, the cupofnurses.shop has 15% off on all sales. If you use the code MARY15, that's M-E-R-R-Y 15. Peter and I are wearing some Cup of Nurses merch right now. It is hot. Get it while supplies last. It's hot. Merch is hot, but the winter's cold. In this episode, we'd like to introduce you to Arika Savatsketi. Arika has worked as registered nurse and patient care manager at the University of Chicago Medical Center's Medical Intensive Care Unit. Arika was involved in a successful testing of the helmet ventilator in the ICU at the University of Chicago during a three-year trial study. In this episode, we focus on the benefits of helmet-based, non-invasive, positive pressure ventilation and patient outcomes. Thank you, Rika, for being here. Can you give us a little bit of a background about yourself and how you guys started in this project? Yes, well, thank you, Matt and Peter, for having me here. I'm very excited to share my story and my mission. And uh, I know we're here to change the world, right? So my mission is very much about changing the world in our ICU units, in our uh, ER uh, departments, how we treat patients and how we can actually save more lives by using non-invasive ventilation more often. And um, I'm originally from Lithuania, so I got my bachelor's degree in nursing back in Vilnius, and I did work as a registered nurse in an ICU in Lithuania. When I came to US, I worked as a registered nurse at University of Chicago hospitals. And uh, that was back in 2005. Then in uh, 2010, I got promoted to be a patient care manager for the medical ICU that I worked. And it was very interesting and challenging move <laughs> that I did in my life, in my career. And at the same time, I also decided to pursue my Master of Science in Nursing, an acute care nurse practitioner degree at Rush University College of Nursing. So a lot of things were happening back then. And also in 2014, when I was completing my master's degree, um, Dr. Patel and her team did a study in a medical ICU at University of Chicago with helmet interfaces. They actually had patients, immunocompromised patients, uh, who used helmet interface to uh, receive positive pressure ventilation or to use a face mask. Mm. So during that time, I actually saw patients on the helmet interface and I decided to write my capstone paper actually about patient who was in ARDS used the helmet and actually survived the stay mm. in the ICU. Mm. Wow. And can you give us a little more information about the helmet? How is the helmet different from a typical like face mask? How does it how does it look like? What do people expect to see if you bring the, the helmet? Yeah. So uh first when I saw the helmet, actually, you know, I look at this device and uh, you know in ICU we have so many 
cool gadget, very high tech with all the buttons and numbers, right? And I saw this helmet in the unit and I was thinking, what the heck is this? <laughs> it's kind of bulky, simple, you know, uh, device that looks like a hood. So it is actually a clear plastic hood that goes over the patient's head and connects to the collar, okay? That goes, uh, that has a nice soft seal around the neck. Mm. So what happens when this hood, so it, just imagine like you would go to space, right? You have this hood, but this is a plastic one that is inflated. So it inflates in a second. So I, with this, device or we call it interface it's the same like face mask if this just one of the types of interfaces nothing is touching patient's face and he has unobstructed view because of the plastic hood right um and the seal is created not around the patient's face, mouth, and nose that we usually see with the face mask, but the seal is actually created around the patient's neck. Mm. And uh, just because, you know, necks come in uh, maybe different sizes, but the same shape, it's much easier to create that good seal around the neck than the face. Mm -hmm. And the nurses who work in uh, uh, ICU settings or uh, step-down units where we use face masks a lot, a lot. We know how sometimes it's hard to create that seal around the face mask so there you are no air leaks to actually keep that positive pressure in the system, right? So this is how the helmet looks. And of course, you're going to need the um, two inlet and outlet ports where the air is coming in and coming out. Uh, also, there is a patient access port, which is so easy to use. Uh, and even some patients can use it by themselves. If they need to take a sip of water or uh, suction their mouth, they can easily access their face through the special uh, opening. And it depends on uh, what type of helmet are you using. They have different ways to access patient face without actually interrupting the therapy itself. Mm. Um, so those uh, main uh, main um, parts of the helmet. Another very important uh, part is actually underarm straps. So what happens when the helmet gets inflated because of that positive pressure in the helmet, it starts to rise up like a balloon. Mm. And to keep that helmet down, and that helps actually to keep that uh, seal intact around the neck, you have underarm straps. So those are usually just the soft straps that uh, keep the helmet down and uh, uh, improve the uh, therapy, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation therapy. There are, very, uh, sounds very fast. Yeah, go ahead. One issue that we have with, for example, BiPAP face masks is the interruption of therapy. You got to give somebody PO meds, their mouth dries up, they get thirsty. So you're always switching between BiPAP with a nasal cannula, then they desat. All right, sweetie, we got to put the mask back on. You're setting 85%, slap it back on. So there's a lot of that like interruption that uh, could prevent the healing process. And then also you mentioned that it's not going on the face and there's no air leak. So a lot of times we get the fatigue from the ventilators, especially if they have like different facial structures and they're leaking above like, uh, I don't even know what the number is, but 50 or 40 or 60, those numbers were just like, all right, we have to tweak the alarms and call respiratory because this is happening. Yeah. And then the injury part of things, right? There's always injuries that are happening. We're trying to put plastic on their, on their nose to prevent the skin breakdown of having long-term uh, positive ventilation. Mm. Yes, and uh, you mentioned very uh, important, you know, complications that happen with the patients. And usually we don't see what happened next with these patients, but they go through a lot of, uh, you know, procedures and even surgeries if you get uh, necrosis on the face mm. uh, from the use of face mask. And uh, 
Also, another thing that uh, I learned uh, recently, there was a study done where we looked at the vocal cord edema mm. and we compared the face mask and the helmet patients. And we saw that uh, vocal cord edema was 73% in face mask group and only 7% in helmet group. Mm. Uh, mm. So also like laryngeal bleeding ulceration and uh, hyperemia, hyperemia. So this is where we, when we mention all these complications, we're actually talking about patient comfort. And as you know, the main reason, one of the top reasons why the non-invasive ventilation fails is the comfort issue. The yeah. interface doesn't fit the patient. And uh, like you said, patient face can be different. And also, especially in older ones who have that, uh, you know, less padding on their face, it's less, uh, uh, or they uh, have missing teeth. Uh, with the helmet, you don't have to worry about it. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of universal fit when you use helmet interface. You don't have to worry about the facial hair. You don't have to worry about uh, even trauma to the face. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a, a one case where we used helmet for patient post uh, sinus um, uh, surgeries. And it worked just fine. We didn't need to intubate that patient. Um, another thing is important for patients in the helmet, we can have their glasses on. Mm -hmm. And you know, we don't think at, about that very much, but actually when you are there and you are sick, uh, the ability to see well is very important, you know, mm -hmm. it, and and it makes you feel, you know, more like a human being, yeah. right? <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. You you mentioned very important, you know, um, features that helmet can help with. And just to kind of take a step back, just so everybody that's listening understands the reason of putting positive uh, ventilation, can you briefly just describe the reason why we do positive pressure ventilation for patients and the anatomy effects of instilling the positive ventilation? Yeah, so, um, so non-invasive positive pressure ventilation uh, involves the delivery of oxygen into the lungs uh, thanks to the positive pressure without putting the endotracheal intubation. And uh, you probably heard about its use uh, for patients in the sleep apnea that we're using at home, the CPAP. And there are, in a hospital, we usually use for the type one respiratory uh, distress where um, the alveoles are flooded by, by the fluid caused by pneumonia or um, emphysema. And um, what happens then we have issues with the gas exchange. And when we apply this positive pressure ventilation, we are able to open up those uh, alveoles and improve that gas exchange and increase the oxygen therapy. And also we will be, um, can I answer this again? <laughs> yeah, I'm just wondering what's Sorry. like. My, my my question was is what is like the positive effects of positive ventilation for like the anatomy of like the lungs and how does it actually benefit the patient? Right. Or why do we why do we need non-invasive positive pressure ventilation? Like what what's going on where where the patient needs to be put on a a CPAP, BiPAP, or or this uh, a helmet based intervention? Okay. Okay. Um, I don't want to go too deep into it, so I'm trying, you know, to. Um, okay, so okay, let me take a pause. So, what is non-invasive positive pressure ventilation? It is actually delivering the oxygen into the lungs by applying positive pressure ventilation and without using invasive endotracheal endotracheal intubation. And the reason why we need it is because sometimes just the oxygen therapy that we use like nasal cannula or face mask without the pressure is just not enough 
because due to the pneumonia or emphysema or ARDS, the alveolus in your lungs are inflamed. And what happens, we collapse. And when we are collapsed, these alveolus are not good for the gas exchange. So with this non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, we are able to open up those alveolus and help them to stay open. And at the same time, we will increase the gas exchange in those units. So, and there are two different ways to do it. So you can use a CPAP therapy. This is when you just have the end expiratory, uh, positive and expiratory pressure applied. So what happens, the patient decides how deep the breath we wanna take. But when we exhale, actually the pressure that is in the helmet will also stay in the patient's lungs. So that pressure will keep those alveoles open. And then there is another setting, the BiPAP or uh, pressure support ventilation, we, we, where we actually helping to ventilate those alveoles, where we actually increasing that tidal volume by increasing the pressure uh, at the time when patient is taking a breath in. Mm. So I hope I, I, I explained that, <laughs> uh, explained it in a short. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Mudwater, our alternative to coffee. It has all the benefits of coffee without the anxiety, jitters, and crashes. My favorite ingredient in mud water is lion's mane because it keeps me alert and focused. My favorite ingredient in mud water is chaga and reishi because it boosts my immune system. It's like chai and cacao had a baby. Mud water works with our body, not against it. Not like most caffeinated products. Mud water is 100% USDA organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and kosher certified. Our favorite way to drink mud water is with a nice froth on top and some honey. Use code Cup of Nurses for discount at checkout. That is code Cup of Nurses. Not to mention, with every purchase, mud water donates to the Berkeley Center for the Science of Psychedelics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It makes, really good. Yeah, it makes complete sense because if you have collapsed alveoli, it's not able to produce that gas exchange. You're not able to oxygenate your blood and your organs. And we need that positive pressure to keep those alveoli opened and actually do what they're supposed to be doing. Because if they're, they're collapsed, they're not doing anything. You know? And anybody that's not, not in the ICU setting listening is, of course, we could intubate a patient and deliver the best therapy and gas exchange. But there's a lot of complications with intubation, yeah. sedation, them not being able to get extubated, them developing pneumonia. So this is prevention medicine mm. before taking that ultimate step and needing to be connected to life support. Yeah, there's, there's a reason why when we hear, hey, patient room 12 might get intubated, we're like, oh shit, might get intubated. Because we literally try everything in our power to prevent intubation because once they're intubated, they are really compromised. They're more prone to, like you said, pneumonia, more prone to sepsis. And once somebody gets on, on the ventilator, they're already in bad shape. And their, their chances of coming off a mechanical ventilator are, are, are really low in theory. You know, we don't want, that's why we don't want to intubate people is because then trying to get them off the ventilator, weaning them off, it's a really, really long process and not everybody could come off. People get trachs, they're, they're forever trach then, you know, it's damage to the vocal cords. Uh, it's just, it's a really big problem when somebody becomes intubated because the chances of them coming off the ventilator are, are not the greatest. That's why we want to instill any kind of actions or any kind of protocols or, or any kind of interventions to prevent them from being intubated. Because once they're intubated, they're not in a in a really big or they're not really in a in a good spot. So how does the helmet based interface uh, differ, and how is it better than our typical BiPAP and and CPAP on like the number standpoint? Does it prevent um, less intubations? How do the the numbers look like? Yeah, so uh, I will go back to the study that uh, Dr. Patel did at University of Chicago, and actually that was the first study done in U.S. But helmet interface has been used in uh, Italy for over 20 years. Mm. Oh. And uh, uh, to what you just said earlier, I want to add one more very important thing is that with non-invasive ventilation, you're actually uh, saving resources too. Mm. You know, it's the ventilator, is the all the sedatives that you're using, all the other medication that you will need to use for the complications that are happening with mm. invasive uh, ventilation. So, and um, 
again, there are some group of patients that will not survive intubation, especially immunocompromised patients. We know we have, their immune system is so weak and now we are bypassing, you know, our natural defenses <laughs> to prevent any pneumonia or any other complications with the intubation. We know it's it's going to be an issue. Hmm. So what we what we found uh, at the you know, at the University of Chicago during the study that was actually published in 2016 in JAMA that intubation rate for the helmet patient was 18% versus face mask, 62%. Mm. Wow. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the same time, mortality was much lower for the patients. It was 27% uh, for helmet group and 49 for the face mask. Mm -hmm. And also the 90-day mortality was much lower in the helmet group, 34 mm -hmm. versus 56%. And uh, what was interesting that this study, they end up completing sooner than expected. Just because when we put the first data in, uh, it became unethical to use a face mask for these patients because we saw such a big advantage of helmet interface. Mm -hmm. So it's also an interesting you know, uh, fact that we were able to publish the study much sooner because it showed such a great benefits of helmet interface and how superior it was to the face mask. Mm -hmm. So now, I was yeah. just gonna say, so now University of Chicago, where this therapy started, did we completely remove face masks then? And we're just using helmet inter intervention? Um, so you cannot remove face masks. And there is a reason why, because Sometimes you will use non-invasive ventilation for a very short period of time. And sometimes maybe it's easier just to put the face mask on. Mm. But for patients who you believe will need that non-invasive ventilation for more than 8, 12 hours, where you see that there will be some issue with the air leaks, or let's say you will need to apply a higher PEEP, that's where the helmet needs to be applied. Mm. Okay. If um, when I talk with uh, Italian experts who are using helmets for, like I said, over 20 years now, we still use face masks. Mm -hmm. So again, we're not replacing completely other interfaces that are out there. Mm -hmm. um, it just we adding another tool in our toolbox and our supply room. And now when we have a patient who needs non-invasive uh, ventilation, we can fit the interface for that patient, not vice versa. Mm -hmm. And uh, that that makes uh, not just the patient's uh, uh, stay and outcomes better, but also it helps uh, nurses and physicians and respiratory therapists to work with patients who have less complications and you know better comfort with mm -hmm. uh, non-invasive ventilation. And if someone is, if a patient is wearing this this helmet, do you have to turn it off for them to maybe take their pills or or, or drink water? It has to get turned off, right? Same concept. So there's, uh, you don't have to turn it off completely. So uh, the it's continuous airflow, and there is uh, patient access ports. So some are big enough where you can fit through that port your hand and just give them the pills you open up so definitely when you open the port the pressure will drop mm -hmm. but you still have oxygen running so it's like putting on a you know nasal cannula or something mm -hmm. you still have oxygen in the helmet it just the pressure will drop because you opened the patient access port yeah but it takes you literally seconds to get that pressure back on because you're not taking the helmet off you still keep the patient, uh, the helmet on the patient. You open the patient access port, do what you have to do, like provide the oral care section, give the pills, give a sip of water. And the moment you close it, it's inflated, inflated in a second. Mm -hmm. So that's why uh, the interruptions are down to minimum when you use a helmet interface. And again, with... Uh, uh, that you can apply such a higher PEEP for helmet patients 
can help them to, you know, to extend that bridge mm -hmm. that we say, because, you know, with non-invasive ventilation, what do we do? We're giving them more time so the other therapists start to work and patients start to heal, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's what we are doing. We're giving them more time. That's kind of bridge to the next level. And that next level can be intubation mm -hmm. or actually going down on the nasal cannula, right? Mm -hmm. So with this helmet, what you do, you actually give them more time to get better. Or actually you will see in an, usually it takes about two hours or even less where you will see that helmet is not working and you need to intubate. So again, very important thing. Mm -hmm. Helmet is not replacing the mechanical ventilation. And delaying intubation, we know it's going to be uh, worse outcomes for the patient. So again, don't use a helmet as a last resort. Mm -hmm. Helmet should be used the moment you see order that patient needs to have a CPAP therapy or a BiPAP therapy. Mm -hmm. Because helmet is an interface that should fit the patient perfectly. And there is no... Um, magic nothing magic about the helmet i want to say that too it just you want to be aware that this kind of device exists and this will fit probably most of your patients especially older patients or you know uh, patients even who have claustrophobia believe it or not with the helmet the cases of claustrophobia is less than one percent where with the face mask is very high Mm -hmm. That's a very good point because that's something I wanted to ask next. So in my clinical experience, there's a lot of anxiety associated with using BiPAP. They want to tear it apart, you know, take it off continuously. We restrain these patients sometimes. We're pushing Ativan to help with their anxiety. And that just leads to more complications. They get more tachypnic and probably just pushes them towards that endotracheal intubation a mm -hmm. lot more. So was there any research comparing the amount of medications you're using for regular face mask interfaces versus the helmet therapies as far as maybe Ativan or needing restraints and et cetera? So there are, and uh, there are many studies from Italy. I will, uh, I will mention actually pediatric population. Mm -hmm. where we also using helmet and we usually use helmet CPAP. So all these kids and babies that use helmet usually don't have any sedation or any pain medication received. Uh, re they don't receive any pain medication. Where with the face mask, they will be. So there are like many studies that mention that. Uh, for adults, we did use some meds at the University of Chicago and um, that's because we also did deliver bi-level ventilation for these patients. So you imagine, this is a little bit uh, harder therapy for the patient to take because when you're inhaling, you get uh, this push of air to increase the ventilation, right? To ventilate the lung. Where with the CPAP, there's nothing like that. With CPAP, is uh, it's kind of gentle ventilation. And... Um, more comfortable for the patient. So again, it depends on what therapy you're using. And uh, uh, some patients will have a, a sedation during the uh, helmet uh, non-invasive ventilation. And there is very good study by Greco and colleagues from Italy who compared high flonies, a cannula and helmet non-invasive ventilation. So again, when I say helmet non-invasive ventilation, that means it's it is bi-level ventilation, pressure support ventilation or BiPAP. Okay. So those patients are usually much uh, sicker. They have PCO2 much higher, so they need to ventilate their lungs uh, more aggressively. Mm. So these patients, what happened? We had um, we had higher. Um, uh, so the, the helmet patients had some sedation where the high flow nasal cannula obviously didn't because again, high flow nasal cannula is much, it's very comfortable interface. Um, but we did have actually uh, less intubation rates in the helmet patients. Mm. 
So uh, again, now when we think that uh, high flow nasal cannula uh, patients and uh, helmet patients who received sedation, we still did better, mm. right? Uh, because we didn't get intubated. Uh, the study actually found that their, the length of hospitalization for these both groups uh, were not different. So that's one thing. Uh, but the intubation rate actually was that that was an interesting finding that mm. we had much less in the patient in the helmet. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there are many studies coming out now, especially the ones that were done with COVID patients. So again, uh, Italy used helmet for COVID patients and they even, um, they, because we are making helmets too in Italy, there are three companies who are making helmets. So the government uh, prohibited to uh, export any helmets during the 2020 mm -hmm. uh, COVID um, pandemic. And uh, that's why a lot of countries around the world started to make their own helmet, helmets and mm -hmm. including US. Yeah. How's the noise of, of the helmets? Because if, if it goes over your head, right, you're surrounded by this, are you constantly hearing air? Because in, in BiPAPs and CPAPs, you're just covering the, the mouth and the nose for the most part, so it doesn't affect your hearing at all, unless, you're, unless it's alarming. So with these helmets, is, is, does it affect their, their hearing? Is it, do you have to speak louder to these patients to get them to understand? Yeah, very good question. And noise can be an issue. Hmm. But it's important to understand that... Uh, helmet is not making the noise it just amplifies the noise mm. so it depends what kind of therapy what kind of machine are you connecting to the helmet if it's a uh, bi-level ventilation it's usually not noisy because of the ventilator uh, and also by using correct tubing that is connected to the helmet it's usually a corrugated tubing uh smooth bore so it's it doesn't create that turbulence in the tubing, automatically it's gonna be less noisy in the helmet. Um, if you use helmet without the ventilator, which is again, another great feature uh, that you can uh, save resources and helmets, it's, uh, I'm sorry, and ventilators, <laughs> is that uh, with the helmet, you can just connect it to the um, uh, wall gases and you will have a CPAP therapy for this patient right now, uh, mm. right there without any machine connected. But this is a noisy setup. This is gonna be noisy. So usually patients, we have um, um, just the earplugs or we put the filter on the um, air where the air enters the helmet and that filter, the antibacterial filter that we use you know, in, on the ventilators, works like a muffler. Mm. So it actually reduces the noise in a helmet. Um, what I noticed when uh, I was at University of Chicago that patients actually just fell to asleep when we put the helmet on because mm. that noise was kind of like a white noise. Mm. <laughs> and that was the first time we saw patients actually resting. When we put the helmet on, we usually just go to sleep and we would worry, oh, is it maybe CO2 rebreathing issue or mm. something? But it just, we finally got some rest and finally we feel comfortable doing non-invasive ventilation. I'm about to put on my CWAP patients next time I get one, put a little helmet on them with the white noise, get a little melatonin, they're good, no need for Ativan. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, I so I had a, a pleasure to go to New Zealand to one of the conferences there, and I talked with nurses. What are their experience with uh, um, helmets? And we said, we love it. So people who are using nurses, especially, we say, we love it because patients are so comfortable in it. And uh, uh, I heard from other experts that we use for patients who are Compatible, compatible. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, I also heard from uh, other experts who uh, use helmets for patients who are not cooperative. Mm -hmm. Let's say uh, dementia patients and who take the mask off all the time. So when you put the helmet on, it's gonna stay on it, and you know it. It, it will be good also for the staff 
And you mentioned a New Zealand study because you already have these helmets in New Zealand, right? So how how is how is that research looking from New Zealand? You mentioned a lot about the the research done in in Italy and and their work with these helmets. How is New Zealand uh, taking these helmets, and how are how are the results presenting in those hospitals? So uh, New Zealand is actually very new mm-hmm. for helmets. Uh, the reason uh, why we got helmets now is because of COVID uh, pandemic. But in New Zealand, we have a lot of clinicians from uh, United Kingdom. And UK is uh, using uh, helmets for a long time now. So what happened, a lot of physicians in New Zealand were able to apply helmets for the COVID patients. Mm. And uh, uh, during the conference, uh, I met with uh, many of them who are very excited that it's finally available in their hospitals. And uh, again, we just have to go through that learning curve for the mm-hmm. staff. So because we don't have respiratory therapists in New Zealand, nurses are doing all of that. So we have to set up the helmet and ventilator. So that's the main thing that we have to do is actually convince their staff, teach them how to use it, and then you know practice on a daily basis because this is how you can get good on it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the same is in U.S. also. Uh, helmets are there available. Anyone can buy it. The problem is, are you ready to go through that learning curve? Uh, because you have a big team that has to learn a new device. It is a simple device, but still, there is a learning curve. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I still notice in the U.S. especially, there is a confusion about um, helmet and the studies that people read about helmets. In the confusion is about terminology. Like I mentioned before, helmet NIV is the bi-level ventilation uh, therapy. Helmet CPAP is the CPAP therapy. Mm-hmm. So a lot of studies that talk about helmet NIV, that means that we are talking about bi-level ventilation and just people assume that it's also a CPAP therapy, but it's mm-hmm. not. So you have to be very careful when you read these studies or when you use the terminology. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I learned that also in the US, I learned that uh, a lot of uh, clinicians think that helmet will replace the ventilator, where again, that's not true. Helmet should not be used as a last resort. Mm-hmm. Helmet should be used the moment you see in your protocol that patient needs a CPAP or BiPAP therapy. Mm-hmm. This is when you think, okay, so which interface will fit that patient? Um, so yeah, in New Zealand, I really like to chat with all the uh, physicians and I uh, did a couple of presentations. And also we did a workshop where we just showed how it you know, works on a um, on a volunteer, mm-hmm. and uh, um, I hope that a lot of a lot of those uh, um, clinicians will come back to their units and actually uh, try the helmet themselves first. That's also very important thing, mm-hmm. especially when we talk about patient anxiety and claustrophobia. If you are the person who's going to put that helmet on a patient, you want to be very confident (laughs) and know what you're doing. So my advice, and not just mine, also Italians that I talk with, we say you have to try the helmet on yourself first. Because when the patient will ask you, yeah, so you did put that back on your head yourself, you wanted to answer, yes, I did. And it feels comfortable. So That's like one of my advices for the first time users. You want to try it on yourself and then you will know how it feels and it's going to help you to stay confident and, uh, uh, you know, make that stress-free transition from, let's say, face mask to the helmet for the patient. I'm just curious on how is your team and you, um, how do you approach like the United States market and 
would you pitch it to hospitals or organizations? What is like that approach? And I'm also selfishly asking because maybe I'll have an intervention in like a year or two. Peter and I will invite, invent something. Who knows? But like, how do you actually go about introducing your product to a different like market in healthcare? You know, it's uh, it was easier due in 2020, uh, begin beginning of 21, just because we we still were fighting and we were not sure what we are doing with <laughs> COVID patients. So definitely, you know, non-invasive ventilation was better than intubation. Mm -hmm. So that was easy for me to uh, even go to the hospital and, uh, uh, you know, do the workshop and teach about the helmet. But the problem was we didn't have good helmets available because mm -hmm. of the FDA approval. So, but now we have, all these helmets, FDA, EUA approved, so hospitals can use it, but we have other issue. A lot, of, a lot of nurses and doctors are burned out. So anything that you wanna bring new mm. to the hospital now, we will say, stop it. We cannot take any new stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it, it is a problem. And uh, a lot of clinicians don't like the change. Yeah. And uh, so it's a human factor that you have to go over, that you have to um, that you have to keep in mind when you talk about something new. And uh, when I talk about helmets, I usually my client is a nurse, a respiratory therapist, and a physician. So I want to tell them how the helmet can help them actually to have. Uh, uh, to save time and be more efficient on a unit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a big thing to bring up because every time I hear that, hey, there's a there's somebody coming in, they're going to show us a new product. It's like, damn, I got to learn how to do something now that took me maybe like a few minutes to do because I've been doing it for last five years. Now I have to try to do it a different way, which is then going to take up more time in the beginning, but then I know I'll eventually learn how to do it. But it's that it's like getting over that hump of just devoting a little bit more time now so then you can improve patient outcomes more in the future. And like you mentioned, a lot of these places are, are understaffed and, and high workloads, real stressed, where it's hard for, for that physician or that nurse to take this extra step of devoting more time now to then seeing better results in, in the future. That's like the biggest biggest block. That's the biggest block for us too. Like when I see an in-service coming, I'm like, man, I don't really want to do this in service, Like, like the new dressings. You're like, yeah. oh, okay, now another dressing. I already know the, how to do it this yeah. way. So. Or those foam things for turning patients. Instead of a pillow, you use like that foam thing. You got you to mold it into the back where it's like instead of putting a pillow. But but those foam things actually work really well. It's just in the beginning, it's just a pain, pain in the butt to do because you're trying to figure out how to, how to do it. You're not as efficient in it in it uh, compared to the things that you've been doing for the last five years. Yeah. But is it better for the patient? Yeah. Do we feel like doing it? For some reason, it's, it's no. And, and, right? that's, and that's a very good point that you bring. You guys both bring up. It's just we're overworked and overstressed as a healthcare collective. And there's no creative juices to try a new product for a better outcomes. Because you're not worried about better outcomes. You're worried about like survival mode, right. trying to just get by in your workplace. Yeah, and we're stuck. We're stuck in healthcare because we, we always want to improve patient satisfaction, improve patient outcomes, but we don't have that time for that change. So how are you, how do you expect to improve patient outcomes and have a better cohort on the, on the unit if nothing's being changed? You're trying, you're basically just, just, just hopelessly or not hopelessly, but you're just instilling hope and hopefully some, something better happens, but nothing ever is going to improve if you're just doing the same thing over and over and over again. And to improve, you have to devote some time into doing something else, which is, which then takes a little bit more time. But, you, but as like healthcare professionals, we have to realize that we can change healthcare. We can change patient outcomes if we're not doing something different, if we're not bringing in new technology, if we're not changing up. Uh, our routine. If you don't change anything, how can you ever expect to have better outcomes or, or ever have any kind of impact on healthcare? You really can't. Yeah, I, listen, I hear you. I, I remember days when I was a nurse in the unit and then a patient care manager. So you imagine I come to the unit and say, here, we have a new protocol or we have something new on our epic charting. And, you know, again, uh, another thing that I I learned during those years that sometimes something that is so high tech is not always better because what 
I noticed on the unit, we started to become like uh, alarm overwhelmed. I don't know if you feel the same, but we have so much technology and everything is just alarming and beeping that people start to ignore and then something terrible happens. And at the same time, can you blame a person? No, you can't. And that's what I, that, that's my uh, like belief that you cannot blame a person. There is something else, it's the system failure. So if we can bring something that maybe is not even so high tech, like, like for example, helmet, right? Something simple that's been here over 20 years uh, can actually improve and help us to do our work better and you know to take a break from everything. Um, so yeah, I, I, like crazy things that I was thinking about when I was a patient care manager is like, even for the night shift, I strongly believe that we need to have at least two hour nap. Mm, I love that. I love believe that. Believe that as well. Believe her that as well. hundred percent. You know, I was doing that in Lithuania in the ICU and guess what? Nobody died. Mm -hmm. It was a very well, you know, organized uh, schedule. Uh, we did have sometimes days where we couldn't take a nap uh, during the night because it was just hectic, busy, and you just couldn't do it. Mm. But most of the time, I was able to get two hours sleep during the mm. night. That's why we're nurses in California, so we can get at least that one hour. Yeah, yeah at least yeah. one. I, I heard that, like, if you can at least lay your head on a pillow mm. uh, around 1 a.m., you're already doing something good for your body. Oh, yeah. Like when I take a break, because usually I do labs like three or, three or four o'clock in the morning. When I get the hour nap before labs, like those labs are getting drawn, drawn super quick. Like I'm, I'm a whole different person with that nap, you know. Never hemolyze. If I get that nap, blood's not going to hemolyze at all. I'm telling you. It doesn't happen. So that's a hack, you know. You can hack that uh, body but with one hour nap and you perform at your best, you know. Yeah. And it'd be pretty cool as a clinician since we are like the front line and we see everything as... We don't need to look at research studies. We see the research happening day to day with our patients and we're able to tr troubleshoot things. I would love to, as a nurse, be comfortable seeing how I can improve healthcare. How mm. can I improve this situation? What can, can we right? do differently mm. and, and be empowered to do so? But I, I'm not even thinking about that one bit because I got 30 tasks, I'm floating, mm. and there's just way too much stress on a nurse themselves to improve healthcare. Mm. I'm sure as a profession, if we got together, felt empowered, we could make some positive changes because we have people with a lot of money and nice suits implementing change, but we could probably mm. do a better job at implementing it. We're just way too overworked, man. Yeah. There's no, again, no creative juices to do so. Yeah, facts. It's like the people that are leading this change in, in nursing and in patient care are the ones that deal least in nursing and with patient care. And you're completely right. Like if you offer the workload for the nurse, the nurses are going to be able to come up with better ideas on how to treat certain things. It's just that we don't have time for that because we're just overwhelmed with everything that, that we have to do. All that patient care, that care that we give, we don't have time or, or room on how to improve it because we're not going to go home after a long shift and figure out, hey, how can I improve these patient outcomes? We're not, we, no, no one's going to do that. No, one, no one's going to do that. So how, where can this, this change or where can this initiative happen in, in nurses fostering and, and leading nursing care? It's going to happen in a hospital. And the only way to, to do that is on the job. And the only way to do it on the job is if you decrease the workload of the nurses that are, that are trying to actually do these things, right? Because it's not going to happen at home. When have you went, yeah. went home and say, hey, I'm going to think of a better way to turn patients? You did it. The time you did think of it is when you were turning your patient at work. Yep. And that's the only time you had, that's the only few months you had, you had time. And after that, you had to do something else. So how can you expect this drastic change to happen in nursing if you just overwork these nurses and they never have time to think about, hey, how can we innovate this? It's never, it's never going to change. And, and it sucks. But hopefully well, in the future. Sure. You know, the, to make a change uh, in the nursing, it has to be nursing driven. Mm. That it's uh, no other way, because if somebody comes in a nice suit and tells you what to do, you're not going to do it. Mm -hmm. I just know that from my practice. But if it's you guys from your unit who get support from the administration and get that extra 
you know, shift where you can just brainstorm and, uh, you know, apply something new in a, in in your unit or learn from somewhere what is uh, uh, that will help you to save resources and time and be uh, more efficient. Uh, everybody will do it because you own it, right? Yeah. So that's very important too for um, all the hospital um, leaders to understand that you're not helping in in uh, changing anything if you, you know, come and give the directions. I think it should come from inside. Mm -hmm. um, and we did notice that um, at University of Chicago when we started to use a lean methodology. Uh, I don't know if you heard about that, but no. it's very much used in uh, actually in uh, manufacturing cars. Mm. Uh, Toyota uh, started to do that back in I don't know what years. So now it's coming to the hospitals. And what what is interesting, um, um, back in 2010, we started to apply lean methodology at the University of Chicago. And like one of the main reasons why we're doing because we wanted to stop wasting our talent. That means wasting your talent by running around and trying to find supplies or trying to find that Doppler that is usually somewhere in a <laughs> surgical unit now, um, you know, or also uh, stop wasting supplies that you have to. So we did a lot of things and all these things, all these changes were done by us, nurses, doctors, uh, secretaries, respiratory therapists. So every time we were making a change, we had a team who had all these customers, I call, because we are customers there. We want to make sure that what we are doing, it really, we're going to follow it and it works for us. Mm. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah. yeah. Has, to be, has to be nursing driven. Like how are you going to, how is somebody going to gonna tell me to change what I'm doing that has never physically done what I'm doing? It's like it's like telling a mechanic how to fix a car, and you're being a nurse. Man, it's gonna be like, what are you talking about? Yeah, that's not how it works. I'm kind of comparing this to the pressure injury issue. So in healthcare, if there's wounds, it's all hospital, right? Medicare is not gonna pay for it. And we have all these fancy technologies trying to prevent skin breakdown, but you're creating so much stress in our workplace where maybe we're neglecting to turn the patient mm -hmm. because why? We're trying to save this person's life. The last thing we're worried about is some skin breakdown, mm -hmm. as crazy as it sounds. So maybe we're not having time to lotion the body or give a proper bath or fix the wrinkles and sheets where we're lifting them really quickly mm -hmm. and boosting them. It's creating friction shears. So we're trying to compensate by these fancy dressings and things like that, but you're never removing the problem, which is decreasing the stress from the healthcare worker to mm -hmm. create their or to implement and to work properly. So Right. And like from a nursing standpoint, it would be good to have like a skin team or a, or a turning team available every two hours to turn your patient. But they don't have that. Yeah. Well, what we do is, hey, you got a chart that you turn them every two hours. But that's like, that's like a have it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We, ha we had it at the University of Chicago. I'm not mm -hmm. sure if we still have it, but it was really great help mm -hmm. because every two hours we had uh, two strong <laughs> uh, lift team, <laughs> you know, members uh, rounding all the ICUs. So they would come and I'm not sure about VR, probably not, but the ICUs for sure. So mm. every two hours we would come to the unit and it's not like they are turning by themselves, the patient, but the nurse definitely has to be there. Mm. But it was such a great help, you know, yeah. because, uh, you know, sometimes you will need at least four or five people to turn one patient in some cases. Mm -hmm. So it did help us a lot. Uh, and then um, we also had a, a skincare committee that was run by the nurses who would do their rounds a few times a month and they would go through all the units and they look at the patient's skin. And then also we, at the same time, we educate the nurses how to take care of those, you know, usually stage two and three and four um, uh, skin breakdowns. So that was very useful. So, you know, I feel like I 
I worked in, I was in kind of in a little bubble there mm-hmm. because we had almost everything in our hospital. But now I'm realizing, especially when I started to spread awareness about helmets, that not all the hospitals the same and not all the hospitals have all these resources. Mm. So this is why I feel like helmet, which is relatively cheap. uh, So the helmet can cost about $150 to $250. But usually patient uses one helmet for the whole hospital stay. so, but other things that you can save with the helmet, it's like ventilator intubation, you know, complications, the same skin breakdowns, because now with the patient who is on non-invasive ventilation, we can cha- shift their, you know, body weight. We can do everything to prevent those skin mm-hmm. breakdowns. Also, we can prone, you know, we talk about proning a lot right now. Uh, and a lot of people don't realize how hard it is to prone an intubated patient. Mm -hmm. It takes the whole team to come and do that. With the helmet, patient is awake and alert. So the same like face mask, but but with the helmet, it's very easy to prone the patient because Mm -hmm. of the interface. It's not going to press on anything on the face when patient is laying on his uh, belly. And also you can put like a little uh, towel or something soft inside the helmet so mm-hmm. patient can just uh, put his head on it. So yeah, that's another uh, great feature that I forgot to mention earlier. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Is your team working on anything else or yourself maybe that's trying to improve healthcare, implement any changes? Because the way we talk about things, everything's flowing on this podcast so well, it seems very easy on how to solve the problems in the healthcare, right? Mm-hmm. But for some reason, there's so much complications or I don't know, government's not listening, but yeah. Is your team or yourself working on anything else to implement or change healthcare? At this moment, my main focus is actually helmet-based ventilation because I still, um, it is kind of critical time for the helmet because uh, um if uh, we're not going to use it uh, in the U.S., then uh, I don't know if companies will be doing anything to keep these helmets in U.S., mm. right? So, um, you know, so what's going to happen if we don't have helmets? Well, we will see about 20, 30 percent, you know, more patients intubated. Mm-hmm. So um, it. And I think it's huge. If I can, uh, you know, prevent from that, you know, prevent those intubations with helmet, why not? But I did a lot of uh, work with um, creating the course. So I have online course, um, four-hour course about helmet, non-invasive ventilation, and it's it has all the information for the nurses for respiratory therapists, for physicians. So it's, uh, it's. I, I feel like maybe that will make a change mm-hmm. for uh, not just in US, but also in, uh, in other countries. And um, yeah, at this moment, this is my main focus. Another things that I do definitely, I, I, I like healthcare and I like, uh, uh, medicine and also research. So I always look for some uh, hacks, like we were talking about sleep last mm-hmm. time, uh, just a few minutes ago. Uh, like, how do you, um, you know, optimize your body, your health, uh, your mental performance by doing less? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you find that hack, uh, where you can uh, maybe sleep less, but have a good quality sleep and perform well next day, That that's what I'm uh, interested in. And I feel like if uh, um, even when I worked in a hospital, I noticed that uh, intermittent fasting, which uh, usually just happens without even trying <laughs> when you work 12-hour shifts, uh, that helped me also to perform very well and, you know, stay on top of the things, um, you know, so little things like that. I'm also crazy about. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're all about learning how to hack your own body, you know, and we intermittent fast. We've been doing that for pretty consistently for the last like, three years. I want to say, right. If not more, Yeah. ever since we started working nights, I feel like we started intermittent fasting too. 
Yeah, and everyone's everyone's hack is a little bit different. You know, what works for me doesn't necessarily is going to work for you, and what works for you not necessarily going to work for work for me. It's about learning how to hack your own uh, your own body, how to optimize your life. And you have all these different diet trends, these workout routines that you have to do, but you just have to really sit down and figure out what works for you and not what everyone else is doing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so uh, tracking data is also important here. So um, I use the Aura Ring. You mm. probably heard about it. So it uh, monitors your sleep and your heart rate and uh, heart rate variability. And it helps me to... Um, actually to find the um to find the you know things that will not help me so for example if i eat too late at night i know that my sleep will be not best and i will not be at my you know i and i will not be performing at my best the next day mm. so you know definitely alcohol is never good thing to do so uh, and uh, sometimes I even can see from uh, that data that uh, um, maybe I have to take it easy today. Like, I'm not going to go to the gym. I'm just going to rest or, you know, do something uh, easy like yoga. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that that's that's another thing I'm so passionate about. And I'm wondering how can we um, make it, you know, implement that in our uh in our uh, workplaces mm. uh, because uh, when I was a manager, you know, if bringing uh, donuts to the meetings was not, not my favorite thing to do. Mm. Uh, I just knew that a lot of people will show up. if they <laughs> yeah. donuts. They'll definitely show up more if you bring, they'll definitely show up more with donuts and a salad. Cause if you bring a salad, no one's even, you have guys. No. No, exactly. So I tried different things and then still donuts was <laughs> you know, the most popular. Definitely coffee, you know, that always works. But um, yeah, it's um, I, I used a lot of hacks when I worked uh, uh, long shifts and also when I was a patient care manager. So that that helped me to stay, you know, in a good shape and perform at my best. Mm -hmm. And Arika, uh where do people go to, to find you or find out more about this helmet-based uh, ventilation? So you can find me on uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, but we have a website that is helmetbasedventilation.com. Um, and there is a lot of articles, uh, the story, and also that's where the courses are. Also, uh, you can find some protocols, how to use helmets, latest studies, and some of them are so good. Like you can just read one study and you will know how the helmet works. It will cover everything that I talk in four hour <laughs> training. Like one study that just came out uh, this year was really good. I'm gonna mention that to you one sec and maybe you can put the link to it too. Sure, sure. Um, so it was um, the CPAP bundle as where it has all the tricks and um and the um troubleshooting tips for the helmet interface um and then another one also by greco and colleagues so i will send that to you so you can post it yeah thank you we could add it to the show notes anybody listening wants to know more yeah. about it they could read about it and one last question we'd like to ask all of our guests. So if you had the opportunity to have a cup of coffee with anybody one last time, who would it be and why? Very good question. Um, you know, I was, I probably would like to have a coffee with myself mm -hmm. 20 years ago. Mm. Why is that? Um, because uh, now what I know about life and taking risks and uh, putting myself out of the comfort zone, I now I know it's not going to kill you. Mm. So I would tell myself, you know, back when was it 2000, let's say, that don't be afraid to take extra steps. Um, 
put yourself sometimes in uncomfortable position or, uh, you know, out, get out of that comfort zone because this is how you're going to grow. And I did this a lot, but I don't, I think, uh, I wish I could do even more. So that may be, that would be um, a nice thing to do. <laughs> yeah. And and definitely, yeah, have a good cup of coffee. That <laughs> it's a very good answer. No one ever said themselves. Yeah. So I and love I love the uh, thought process there. It's really good advice for everybody. Like just just take more risks. You know, you if you don't risk it, you're going to regret it at some point. So just just try it. Yeah. Well, I have in in when I make any decisions in my life, I usually uh, ask myself, is that the right thing to do now? And is that going to hurt anyone? You know, you you always have to think about it. And if it's the right thing to do, uh, you feel like it's a true. It's also something that is true and I believe in it. You have to do it. Mm -hmm. And don't be afraid later to realize that maybe it was not the right idea, right thing to do. That's also very important. Then, then it gives you freedom to make that happen, right? Mm -hmm. When you don't put yourself in that uh, box where you cannot acknowledge that you did something wrong or you 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 were not correct. So mm -hmm. that's that's what I did with helmet-based ventilation. Also, uh, at the beginning, I was still learning. Uh, especially like uh, different setups for the helmet. Um, and uh, I learned that some of them were not correct. So I would always contact my colleagues and put it on a website that, hey guys, this information was not correct. Make sure you do it correctly, right? So again, that that's that's when you feel free. Mm. Yeah, very true. I love that. Mm. Arika, thank you for being on the show and sharing your perspective about the helmet-based interventions. Maybe Peter and I will even pitch our unit that we work when we're traveling or sing uh, here. So yeah, thank you. You're a wealth of knowledge and I hope that people realize the importance of this and in general, the importance of being creative in the workplace and actually trying to see how we can improve healthcare because like you mentioned, the empowerment and a change starts with us and then we could trickle that into other aspects of healthcare. Exactly. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope I helped a lot of people out there to learn something new. And uh, again, don't think that helmet is a magic. It's a simple thing that is so easy to apply and learn. You just have to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, thank you so much, Rika. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you.